going to want to settle in to be unsettled for this one. If you need a brief refresher on the Kennedy family, probably know of John F. Kennedy, JFK, whose presidency ended when he was assassinated in 1963. JFK had come from a robust political family, which included a brother, Robert, or Bobby, who went on to make a run for the presidency in the wake of JFK's assassination, basically to continue the Kennedy family legacy in American politics. But Bobby was also assassinated just a few short years later in 1968. After Bobby's death, of the Kennedy men with established political careers, that left the other brother, Edward, or Ted Kennedy, who was a U.S. senator and was also expected to make a presidential run, particularly after the deaths of his brothers at the height of their political careers and their endearment to the American public. The summer after Bobby's assassination, Ted decided to throw a get-together for some of his friends in politics, as well as a group of young women who had worked on Bobby's campaign and had been, as much of the nation was, devastated by his death. These young women, all single and all under the age of 30, had been affectionately known as the Boiler Room Girls. They'd spent their days cold-calling delegates in order to curry favor for Bobby during his campaign for the presidency. Among them was a young woman named Mary Jo Kopechny. The only child of Joseph and Gwen Kopechny, Mary Jo had been a school teacher before relocating to Washington, D.C. to work on Bobby's campaign. She had a degree in business administration and had been actually doing a great deal of secretarial work for politicians and their speechwriters and their aides for a number of years. She herself had actually worked on the speech that Bobby Kennedy gave announcing his presidential bid in 1968. She was so devastated after Bobby's assassination that she felt she could not return to work on Capitol Hill, despite her wealth of knowledge and work experience in politics that had basically set her up for a very promising career. After she did a brief stay in Colorado, she ultimately did return to D.C. and went on to work on several political campaigns, garnering the respect of Washington's elite. She was doing this work and living with a few other women in Georgetown in the summer of 1969 when she was invited to a reunion cookout in honor of the Boiler Room Girls to thank them for their work on Bobby's campaign. It was being hosted by Bobby's brother Ted, a state senator, and would be held on an island off Martha's Vineyard, where the Kennedy clan had their famous or infamous compound at Hyannisport. The party on Chappaquiddick Island on July 18, 1969 was reachable by a ferry, but the guests would need to stay in a hotel for the night in Edgartown. The Boiler Room girls were in one, and Ted Kennedy and his politician friends were sprinkled about another. The barbecue itself on Chappaquiddick was a somewhat small affair. Six men, all married, all older, and six young women, all single and under the age of 30. Mary Jo Kopechny was the oldest, at 28. What happened between Ted and Mary Jo toward the end of the evening, which had mostly consisted of drinking, cooking up steaks and music, comes only from his account in which he stated that around 11 p.m. he decided he wanted to go back to his hotel room. He'd been talking with Mary Jo, who either made mention that she didn't feel well or simply asked if he'd mind dropping her off at her hotel along his way. In either case, Ted went to the Kennedy family chauffeur, a man named John Crimmins, and asked for the keys to the Oldsmobile. When Ted was asked later why he didn't have the driver take them, he insisted that he just hadn't wanted to disrupt the man's dinner. Ted and Mary Jo left the party together, although that was a fact that at the time 
was not known to anyone at the party. And while the story had always been that Mary Jo wanted to return to her hotel room, her hotel room key, as well as her purse, were left behind at the party, as though she'd intended to return, or as though she'd never wanted to leave in the first place. From here, it's important to note the layout of Chappaquiddick Island, at least to point out that both Mary Jo and Ted had driven the route to the ferry landing several times by this point. Neither of them would have been what you'd call completely unfamiliar with the route, even if it was at night. Still, when painting a portrait of what happened next, Ted Kennedy always maintained that he'd just taken a wrong turn, become somewhat disoriented on his way, and the small bridge over one of the island's tidal ponds came up on him suddenly. He panic-braked, and the car went over the edge, which wouldn't have been hard to do, as the wooden bridge at the time was narrow and had no guardrails. The car, with Ted and Mary Jo in it, hit the water and sunk down seven feet. Ted managed to escape from the car and reached the water's surface. According to his account, he dove back down several times in an attempt to pull Mary Jo free. He fatigued quickly, rested on the bank for about 20 minutes, and then tried again, but to no avail. His next move is perhaps one of the most confounding in the entire case. He left the scene and walked back to the cottage where the party was still happening. Along the way, he passed several houses, many of them with their lights still on, as well as the island's fire department. He did not ask anyone for help. It would be another 10 hours before the accident was even reported. What Ted Kennedy did instead for the rest of that evening is as murky as the water from which Mary Jo Kopechny's body would be pulled the following morning. His official statement, written and unsigned, Ted Kennedy gave the following morning. It tells his version of the rest of that night, the version that, though debated and filled with plot holes and more questions than answers, still persists as the truth, despite its many weaknesses. He said, On July 18, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get the ferry back to Edgartown. I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right onto Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately one half mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger with me, one Miss Mary Kopechny, a former secretary of my brother, Senator Robert Kennedy. The car turned over and sank in the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and the window of the car, but have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. I was unsuccessful in that attempt. I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in front of the cottage and I climbed into the back seat. I then asked for someone to bring me back to Edgartown. I remember walking around for a period and then going back to my hotel room. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. And in fact, the next morning, the diver from the fire department who had been tasked with retrieving Mary Jo Kopechny's body was a man named John Farrar. When he reached the vehicle, he found her locked in a harrowing and somewhat hopeless position from rigor mortis. Her face was turned up toward the water surface, and her hands were gripping the back seat, as though she had died desperate for air. It was not the appearance of someone who had died on impact or even just a few moments later after being knocked unconscious. Mary Jo had lived for some time beneath the water before she died. Although an official autopsy was not conducted. There were experts who examined her body briefly in order to determine cause of death, although it had seemed fairly obvious to everyone that she'd drowned. These experts felt it was more accurate to say that she had suffocated rather than drowned. Some who have investigated and analyzed the case in the years since have proposed that she'd found an air pocket, perhaps a fairly large one. Farrar said in a radio interview some years ago that he believed this, and that if that was the case, she could have stayed alive for at least an hour, if not longer, which would have been plenty of time for her to have been saved, had somebody called for help. No help had come for Mary Jo, but plenty had come for Ted Kennedy in the hours after he left the scene, and in the weeks that followed the accident. In 
In many ways, it was about political strategy. For one thing, he was painted almost immediately as a tragic hero, which fit perfectly into the rather unfortunate legacy of his family, especially as the country was still sensitive to the deaths of his brothers. By now, it was well established that the Kennedy family seemed to be cursed, and if the incident at Chappaquiddick could become part of that narrative, it might just have helped to salvage Ted's political career in the long run. And in the short term, the hope was that it would be enough to keep him out of prison. After he submitted the statement, the police had let Kennedy go because they felt bad for him and also because they assumed that they would get the chance to question him later. That assumption had been incorrect, as Ted retreated to the Kennedy compound, protected by his family, what was left of it anyway, and his high-powered political allies and friends, most of whom were lawyers. The only time he left the compound in the week that followed was to attend Mary Jo's funeral. The Kopechnys were not rich like the Kennedys, nor were they as well acquainted with the cruel circumstances of having to bury a child. In order to pay for her burial, Mary Jo's parents had to draw on the savings account they'd set aside with the intent to one day help their daughter pay for a wedding. When Ted finally did speak about what had happened that night, he was strategic about making several points. One, that they had not been drunk, and they certainly were not driving drunk. He'd stated that he'd had his last rum and coke several hours before. That he had been the one driving the car, and that he had not been driving recklessly or speeding. The car, he said, had been going no more than 20 miles an hour, even as he approached the bridge. He also insisted that there was no illicit tryst between he and Mary Jo. He had just been giving her a ride back to the hotel. It had all just been a tragic accident. While there are still so many unanswered questions all of these years later, the biggest ones emerged almost immediately and were even posed to Kennedy and his lawyers by law enforcement and the judge during the inquest, the foremost of which was why the hell didn't he call anyone for help? Why did he wait all night, only reporting the incident after it became clear the next morning that the accident had already been discovered? In his testimony, he skirted around this question and never really gave any kind of direct answer, other than to eventually take responsibility for what he called a poor decision. For many, the next question has always been, would it have been in vain even if he had gone for help? Would Mary Jo really have been able to survive long enough? Some have argued that she could have potentially survived and that for a time she may have been revivable had Ted Kennedy immediately gone for help. There are others who don't think that she would have been able to survive even if there had been air pockets in the car and she'd been able to get to them. There are also those who believe that Ted Kennedy had not been driving that night that in fact Mary Jo had been, and she may have even been drunk. The claim here being that that's one reason he managed to escape and she didn't. And if she had been drinking that night and was driving under the influence, that would have been yet another reason for Ted to feel like he needed to take the fall. But also, it would have made more sense for him to say he was driving so that he could make one very important move when the incident finally made it before a judge. He'd take responsibility for the lesser offense of leaving the scene and failing to report, and because no one could prove anything illegal had occurred in terms of driving the car, he wouldn't be held accountable for something like manslaughter, even though Mary Jo had died. He was in fact sentenced to two months in prison, a sentence that was suspended, and in the end all he got was a brief suspension of his driver's license. Basically, he and everybody else involved went free. What's meant by everyone else involved is that what else had occurred that night was that by some accounts he had gone back to the party and not just asked to be driven back to the hotel, but had actually told a lawyer, friend, and an aide that he had driven the car off of the bridge, that Mary Jo was still stuck in the car and that he needed them to come help him get her out. And by that account, the three men went back to the scene and they dove down and tried to pull Mary Jo out and were unable to. By that point, they felt that she was no longer alive and that they wouldn't be able to save her. Resolved to this, Ted Kennedy decided that he would swim across the channel back to his hotel and 
report the accident to the police. Satisfied with this, the two men went back to their hotel and didn't follow up with Kennedy. For one thing, they were sure that he'd be able to swim across the channel because he'd done it many times and he seemed to be a man on a mission. A mission of justice, they hoped. It was only later the next morning after they had walked around with and talked amicably about a sailing race that had occurred the day before that they asked him about the accident and he admitted that he hadn't reported it, at which time they told him he had no choice but to report it. And when the men again returned to the scene that morning, they realized that the fire department was already there, diving down to try to retrieve the car, not knowing they would find Mary Jo Kopechny's body in it. When people are surprised to realize that they don't know this story, I usually point out that one of the best things that ever happened to Ted Kennedy was the moon landing, which took place within days of this accident and was exactly where most of America's attention was turned. Nothing, not even the death of a young woman in the car of a married high-ranking U.S. senator in the middle of the night on some island in the Atlantic could have drawn the press away from Neil Armstrong's one small step. Those who were paying attention back then, or who came to know about it in the years that followed, kept asking how it could have happened. Not just the accident, but Kennedy getting off more or less scot-free after just a 10-minute trial. All politicking aside, all legacy of the Kennedy family's power aside, all small-town island life of crime aside, it was more that nobody could prove without a shadow of a doubt that Mary Jo would have survived if he had gone for help, and no one could prove that anything had happened between them or in the car that night that might indicate Ted Kennedy could really be held responsible legally in any way. He was to some extent held responsible by the American public. There would be no justice for Mary Jo because of the legal footwork the Kennedy family could perform in an attempt to salvage what they could of his reputation. He eventually addressed the American people directly, giving a televised speech about what had happened at Chappaquiddick. Most were not swayed or pacified by it, whether law enforcement, the press, or the public. Certainly not those who had known Mary Jo. As such, Ted's hopes of a presidential bid had been dashed, but he did remain a senator for another three decades. The film, which I have not yet seen, but certainly intend to, could only have happened in the last decade because Ted Kennedy died of brain cancer in 2009. In his memoir, he only spoke of the night so long as to call his actions inexcusable, and to say that, as for any lingering rumors that he had been having a doomed affair with Mary Jo Kopechny, quote, she didn't deserve to be linked to me in a romantic way. She deserved better than that. What always seems incredibly ironic to me about this, because I know a lot of random things about the Kennedy family, is that Chappaquiddick wasn't the first time Ted Kennedy had been involved in a fatal accident. Just four years before, he'd been in a small plane that went down in an apple orchard. One of his aides, and the pilot, died. Though he suffered a serious back injury that debilitated him for a time and troubled him for the rest of his life, he had survived the crash. Not by some miracle, but because two other passengers in the plane who also survived, the Bears, Ted had become trapped when the plane crashed, and the Bears didn't leave him in the wreckage. They pulled him out and saved his life. Perhaps in the aftermath of that tragedy, grateful to be alive, Ted Kennedy may have made a promise to himself that someday, if he had the chance to be a hero and save a life, he'd rise to the occasion. He'd pay the favor forward. Whether he made such a promise to himself or not, we'll never know. But we do know that he didn't make or keep the promise of life to Mary Jo Kopechny.